You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. My grandmother, Lynn Guy, she's coming in. She is a former counselor, also the current reigning undisputed champion of greatest grandmother alive. Um, tell me about her, her bio. Well, uh, 20 years as a licensed uh, practitioner focusing on PTSD, childhood abuse, uh, unresolved trauma. Uh, she worked, I know she worked with a lot of uh, survivors of, of sexual abuse and uh, she, she had some rough stories. I mean, she's, uh, she's shared with me, you know, in, in confidence, I mean, she didn't share names or anything, but just things that have, you know, she's had to deal with. And I know there are a lot of decisions that somebody has to make to, to move on from that, to move on from that kind of trauma, that kind of abuse. And sometimes it's not possible, but I, I thought it'd be appropriate to talk to her on uh, on decidedly because there's uh, those are big decisions yes they are so hopefully you guys learned something listening to this conversation welcome in lynn guy i'm sanger smith this is decidedly so we we wanted to have you on decidedly because of the decisions that you have to deal with in working with people as they uh, work through their recovery from sexual abuse, trauma, uh, physical abuse, whatever, whatever that was. And I know that you, you've helped them sort of work through those. Uh, tell me a little bit about your, your story as you got into doing that type of work. Well, that was a big decision in and of itself. Um, for me, uh, I'd been sort of doing lay counseling starting in the early 80s as a group discussion leader in an international Bible study group. And I had a, a small group of about 12 women assigned to me, and I had to call them every week. And I began to realize that most of what I was doing was not talking about the Bible study, but talking about their own personal issues. And I actually saw benefit from doing that. In fact, I was complimented by my leader for the way in which I was interacting with my group and had created a group cohesiveness around this, their feeling um, safe. Yeah. So then I took some training in um, a spiritual growth group, uh, I and another woman in my church that I was attending at the time, and we went out to San Francisco to the Burlingame Counseling Center and learned how to conduct other kinds of more in-depth spiritual growth groups called Yoke Fellows, where you actually take some psychological testing and then you help people learn how to discuss what they discover from those tests. And I had started working uh, full-time at a university and had a, a nice position as an assistant to the head of the university, but my most fulfilling role was when students or faculty member or staff member would come into my office and I would interact with them and just listen to them and talk with them. And I realized that what I most wanted to do was counseling. 
And in order to do that, I was going to need to get certification or licensing. So I got certified as a dispute resolution mediator. I got certified uh, through a group out at Loyola University in Los Angeles as a grief uh, support group counselor. And I still wanted more. And so through a process of my own decision-making, which was gathering information, doing the pros and cons, the costs and benefits, looking at the whys and wherefores of how I could make this happen, I decided to go back to graduate school, quit my job, which was a risk in and of itself, take money out of my uh, retirement fund, and moved to Denton, Texas, and enrolled in Texas Women's University in a uh, counseling program there for my master's in counseling so that I could then become a licensed professional counselor. What, what drew you to the grief counseling part of it? Uh, the grief counseling um, part was, it was interesting because the grief counseling, uh, as I went through it, because I was going through my own grief process uh, because of some family issues uh, that I had learned about and encountered, and um, the uh, death of my biological father followed closely by the death of my um, stepfather, uh, having gone through um, a divorce, uh, just a lot of grief issues in my own life, and so what I had um, discovered was that grief in and of itself is just an opportunity to address how one deals with one's own emotions and beliefs and values and relationships, and so that was a that was a very useful uh, and you know, personally cathartic experience. I, I had somebody one time share with me uh, that, and, and I thought it was really smart, and, and they were they were struggling with uh, the loss of a relationship, you know, a, a breakup of a, of a relationship. And they said, you, you have to go through those steps, those stages of grief on in a relationship, somebody doesn't have to die, but if, if you're separating from uh, like a divorce, it's the same steps that you would go through. You grieve that relationship, but if you don't get over it, you're always sort of dealing with that that baggage and that issue. Uh, even if that person's not deceased, it's that relationship's over. Exactly, and there, there are many kinds of losses. I mean, it's not just a death, it is a divorce, a relationship that maybe was not a marriage, but it was a significant other relationship, the loss of a job, uh, fires, floods, tornadoes, those create opportunities uh, for grief experiences to be very profound and impactful. So any kind of loss is generally followed by a grief process, but people don't always recognize it as grief because one of the ways in which grief is traditionally um, dealt with is, well, I'll just kind of pretend this doesn't affect me, this doesn't bother me, I'm going to go on, I'm going to pull up my bootstraps and move along. Or, you're, you're saying that's a bad thing? 
No, I'm just saying that's part of the process. <laughs> You're saying it's, just stuffing that but down. If you get stuck in it. that, if you get in stuck in that, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. All right. It can cause you to repeat it over and over and over again. But, you know, or people get angry. They, you know, they get angry or they uh, engage in some sort of a magical thinking of, you know, mm -hmm. ways in which you can uh, rise above it. Uh, but it, grief is... It's not just a linear process. It really is kind of a circular spiral. What do you mean? Well, you may go through the same stage numerous times, even though you have, let's say, progressed to a different stage. In other words, do you, do you circle through the entire process again, or do you have to? Do you sort of bounce around and and re go through a wave of anger over and over and over? Right, and over. or is it is it the whole thing again? Uh, you might go through some degrees of that. Hopefully, if you're getting help or you're helping yourself, and there are a lot of really good books that can help people go through like a grief process. I knew you were going to ask me that as soon as I no, said it. And I thought, Bleh, that was wrong. One of the best um, ones I can think of was one of the founders of the grief resolution uh, process out of California, and it's just called the Grief Resolution Handbook. And it's very step-oriented. Of course, everyone is fairly familiar with the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, stages of grief, uh, well, which she took I'm from stages of dying. I, I'm not familiar with, with the, I mean, with Kubler-Ross. I'm familiar with that there are stages of grief, and that's about as far as I get. So I don't know, I don't know what those are. Yeah, um, there they are denial. Bargaining, anger, sorrow or sadness, and acceptance. And acceptance doesn't necessarily mean I'm completely over it. It means I have accepted the reality of this loss, and I may continue to feel sad about it, but I'm no longer going to get caught in the emotions of anger and denial and bargaining. Bargaining is, I think, one that most people um, get stuck in without even recognizing it. Well, if I do so-and-so, I'll get over it. If I right. buy that new house, I'll get over it. If it, I, It would seem like denial would, would be very transitory because you, you have to deal with that, I would think, very quickly. You can only deny that for so long, right? I mean, it, you have to accept this happened, this death happened, this divorce happened, this loss happened, and right? the Yes, and the, the denial stage is not only about denying the loss itself. It's denying that uh, the impact on me personally, okay. Okay. you know, emotionally, uh, spiritually, even physically. Some people literally have physical responses to Lost. Did you did you have to did you, not have to did you end up doing a lot of work with people around grief recovery or was it more in the areas of just getting past uh, abuse issues uh, sexual trauma those types of things? Well, what I what I found is my training in dealing with grief was helpful in the abuse recovery process because. People went through a grief process, and from abuse in that I mean, in is, that is process, the same sort of steps. 
It can be. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, because to recover from the abuse, part of it is, first of all, acknowledging that something happened to you. You didn't cause it. It was an outside event that occurred to you. You know, and the other uh, things that um, are involved is, you know, of course there's going to be denial. Well, it didn't affect me. It didn't bother me. It doesn't have any effect on my life. I've gotten over it. I've forgotten about it. So it's important to explore, really, are there oh, so you're that deni- you You might not deny the loss. You deny the grief. You might not deny the loss. You might deny the grief. Exactly. Yeah. I, w- I would think if as long as you're denying it, you don't know. I mean, you're not going to be able to deal with it until you, you know. Yeah, I love that strategy. <laughs> just deny it. Yeah. Deny that it happened. No, I'm not sad. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know. I, I I think I do that a lot. You know, I, I think I, I that was my joke. Deny that it does. You know, things don't. You know, affect me, but you know they probably do. I think a lot of people do that. I think a lot of people do that, and what it happened, what happens is, I think it comes out sideways for people. It comes out in ways that seem, well, that's bizarre. I wonder why I'm so sad about that movie, or my gosh, why that person, that TV show, or that book yeah. I just read, or oh, that commercial, my lord, it just brought me to tears. You know. So I heard another counselor say one time that when you are angry which is kind of some sort of like denial of the grief i think uh you know when you're denying feelings like anger is a way really good way to kind of put those feelings into a different emotion so he said there's four different types of anger it's when one is when i'm angry and you know i'm angry Mm -hmm. i know i'm angry and you know i'm angry right We, we both know i'm angry i'm yelling and screaming right um, the other one is, I know I'm angry and you don't know I'm angry, right? So I'm, I'm quiet and reserved. I'm being polite and doing all the right things, but I'm, I'm bottling it up. Then the third one is, you know, I'm angry and I don't know I'm angry. And that one's, that one, uh, is interesting because, uh, I've been there a lot where people would say, hey, man, you're angry. Like, calm down. Like, I'm not even angry. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, it's probably angry. Yeah. Um, and then the fourth one is neither of us know that I'm angry. How, does, how, how would that manifest itself, do you think? So obviously I'm not the expert, but yeah. what they what they said was that it comes out sideways. the same language. Okay, it comes out in another form. It comes out in another form. And also anger is generally seen as a, what what is sometimes referred to as an umbrella emotion. In other words, the anger is a shield for sadness or anxiety or fear. Uh-huh. And so rather than acknowledging that I'm afraid or I'm anxious about this situation, I may get angry. Or rather than acknowledging that I'm really sad about something, I may be angry so it's uh, you know one of the things that i would oftentimes ask my clients who came in manifesting just you know a lot of anger i said if you weren't so angry what else might you be feeling you know and it's a trick i'd get i would be so mad at a counselor for asking me that i'd get more angry and i would say what are you talking about (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean exactly yeah And so then we would explore, you know, because 
oftentimes the anger protects people from having to acknowledge the sadness or the fear. And I hate to be, this shows my age, I hate to be too gender specific, but it's a technique more used in uh, by men than women. Mm-hmm. Women tend to use sadness to disguise what they're really uh. feeling. Men tend to use anger. Okay. That's just... Is there? Do you think there's a generational um, component of that breakdown? I, it seems like older men definitely have a reputation for for masking their emotions with anger more than younger men, or masking them in general. Masking, yeah. yeah, and I think that that's all part of yeah culture and uh, I wonder what, socialization. What, what, what do you why? think impacts? Do you think it's just socialization? I think uh, like that we. I was able to interact with more people than my father and his father and his father and his father. Well, I, I think some of it is, but but for the anger, the other emotions generally seen as non-masculine. Exactly. Right. And so I, I'm okay showing anger. It's the if it's the only one that society lets me show to feel masculine, I'm I'm going to stuff down my sadness. My uh, I'm not going to have high ranges of happiness. The real weird is, yeah, the real weird one is men who won't allow you to show that they're, won't allow themselves to be seen happy. I saw this video of Trace Adkins, you know, the country singer uh, the other day. And it was on the internet, like as a joke, he, him reacting to his grand, becoming a grandfather. And they're like, hey, Trace, you know, how does it feel to be a grandfather? And he goes, all right. You're like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And they kept pressing him, like, you know, when was your baby born? Uh, sometime November, I think. You know, I don't remember. And uh, this this had happened a while back. Obviously, it wasn't recent. All the every question they asked, he he acted like he didn't care. Now he was smiling for some of the answers. Yeah, he wasn't. It wasn't. You didn't think that he didn't care. But he absolutely was not going to let you think he was happy, and I just thought it was so. That, odd. That's interesting. It was it was like really sad actually. But that's you know so so it's interesting that 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 that's the outlet. You know, kind of going sideways as you said, not dealing with some of the grief can can express itself in in anger for men more readily than it would be for women if you want to be gender specific on that because of the masculine trait that that you know imbues versus sadness or happiness or you know so forth so in in working with a lot of people whether it's through grief uh recovery or recovery some of the other you know abuses or 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 so forth uh what what bad decisions do you normally see people making that is that is impeding their recovery oh goodness um that's well you know the gamut I mean, bad relationship choices. Um, um, bad relationship choices would probably be the primary uh, manifestation of someone with an abuse history. What's a what's a bad relationship choice uh, look like? Where you are in a Other relationship. Other than all the women that dump me. <laughs> well, where you Wait, are. I'm really surprised you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> You might want to schedule an appointment after this, you know, so we can discuss that more thoroughly. (laughs) Well, in other words, people who tend to get in the same old, same old over and over and over again, 
you know, generally when someone has a history of abuse, whether it's sexual abuse, physical abuse, uh, emotional mm-hmm. abuse, psychological abuse, spiritual abuse, yeah. uh, they are going to tend to get into relationships that will replicate that same kind of experience so that they can maybe even unknowingly try to have mastery over that. They feel, it feels that familiar as well. It's very familiar. It's so, very familiar. And so they say, oh, this is so familiar. I know how to do this. Uh-huh. And so they keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Whereas to change some, not just the choice of who you're in the relationship, but maybe how you are responding to dynamics within the relationship because you're too afraid or it's too threatening or I will lose the relationship if I, you know, speak up, uh, whatever. To, to try to change those is very threatening. And that's why it's important for the person who has come in to see a counselor to work through those kinds of changes in the therapeutic setting. In yeah. other words, if they've never confronted another person who they perceive has more power or more control than them, it's real important that in the therapeutic setting they give themselves permission to say, I don't, just, I don't like what you just said to me. You don't like what I just said to you. Tell me more about that. When I said, are you more, if you weren't so angry, what would you be? Would you be more afraid or would you be more sad? I understood that that felt more angering to you. Let's talk about that. So we would explore that. Yeah. So that you might find out, do I get angry when I feel threatened that I'm going to lose something that I have? Or do I feel threatened that I'm not going to get something that I want? And so we would explore those. Are those the only two? Not necessarily, but those are the primary ones. Really? Yeah. Okay. Primary. primary. But that could be intangible, right? Like I'm going to lose dignity, Mm -hmm. social status. Yeah. Yeah. Based on popularity. You just insulted me. So now everyone thinks whatever it is. Security. Certainty. Okay. No, that's fascinating. So you think those bad decisions about re- relationships, you said, you said that's primarily the bad decision that people are making is, is that sort of falling into that and they're doing it. We, I found that that was interesting what you said around they're, they're making that same mistake around decision making with respect to relationships to try and gain mastery over that. And I, I had heard before and I had always assumed that people will re- repeat those same types of relationships because even if they're destructive, it's comfortable. They know they know the deal. They know what it is. That never quite made sense to me. But I, I had not heard anybody say they're doing it to to gain mastery over it. In other words, I'm going to try this again, and maybe I'll get better at it. Uh, maybe I didn't change the last relationship or have success there, but maybe I will. Maybe I time. will this time. That's that's interesting. You know. And oftentimes, interestingly enough, and this is part of a theory that I like a lot, it's called the Imago Therapy. And it was developed by a a Ph.D. therapist and his wife. Uh, His name was Howard Hendricks. But he says people will tend to choose 
in a relationship uh, the negatives and positives of their primary caregivers. Yeah. Their original primary caregivers. Well, in I learned words, that in that book that you recommended yes. to me, uh, uh, yes. Keeping the Love That You Find by yes. uh, Harvey something, I think is his name. Harville Hendricks. Harville Hendricks. I said Howard, and, but I meant Harville. Yeah, I always Harville. forget. Um, he, he um, you know, has you go through a bunch of different like worksheets mm-hmm. and things within that book. It's really interesting. It's very, very interesting and useful and helpful. It's just putting it into practice that is, again, threatening because you go, oh, this feels different to me. This feels wrong. Generally, any behavior that we change that's been a pattern is going to feel wrong, and that's air quotes around wrong, when we first do it. Yeah. So when you when you look at working with somebody to to try and get out of that behavior pattern mm-hmm. where they're they're making that bad decision mm-hmm. ag- again and again, uh, even if it's got a praiseworthy uh, objective, which is to gain mastery over it, I'm sure there are other decisions that you're trying to work with them on as well. But w- what are you finding are the the things that are helpful in helping people make better decisions along those lines of, of recovery? Well, it's not, it's not um, an easy process, and it's not a one-size-fits-all process. Yeah, I wouldn't think. It takes a lot of preparation to get to that point, and when, I'm, when I say preparation, that's not really the appropriate word. It takes a lot of investigation, self-investigation for the person, first of all, to recognize how am I defining myself based on what happened to me? Am I seeing myself as um, primarily in a victim role when I don't even recognize that I'm primarily in a victim role? Or am I a martyr? I got through that, you know, it happened to me, but by gosh, you I'm know. I'm so I tough, yeah. I'm know? so big and strong. And so they're yeah. always, always, you know, putting themselves in a role where they will be seen as rising above something. Or do, am do I both seen... of those just come down to your to some sort of narcissism? Not in a, like a diagnosed, like clinical sense, but I, I feel like a lot of times our egos cause us to place so much more importance on the things that we're involved in mm-hmm. or the fe- or even our own feelings. Well, I think if we're talking about someone who has experienced abuse and they've come yeah. to me as counselor, um, the most important thing I can do is help them strengthen their ego because generally their ego has been in terribly mm. warped or damaged. And when I say warped, uh, it can cause them to be overly invested in a narcissistic kind of stance, or they can be in a uh, poor me, self-deprecating, I'm always here to serve others, approval-seeking uh, role. And so we, we want to explore uh, in the therapeutic setting what identity are they most attached to at this point? Are they the victim? Are they the martyr? Are they the survivor? Or do they want to be the, what I call the thriver? 
do they want to um, not carry a label around about something that happened to them back then, back there, that's never going to not have happened, that they can't change, but doesn't have to be their identity. One of the most favorite quotes I have from Joan Dedian, who is a, as an author, she was a screenplay writer, and she said, I've lost touch with a couple of people I used to be. And I love that, you know, yeah. and that's kind of the goal in uh, dealing with people who've experienced abuse is helping them to lose, hanging on to that identity of, you know, well, I'm a child of an alcoholic or I am a recovering alcoholic or I'm a sexual abuse survivor. Or, I'm an incest survivor. Or, I'm a domestic abuse survivor, you know, um, whatever that identity is that they it's kind of what I call causes those good old bad old feelings they just kind of get comfortable with that and you find people using that as a as a crutch for excusing bad decision making oh I would think that that would be very much right so I mean that so that would be an important reason to break away from this identity of, of sort of saying I'm a I'm a survivor of whatever. Right. And, and using that as an excuse for, you know, and this is why I can't, you know, be successful in whatever endeavor because of this one event. That I, would make, I would imagine that it, attaching ourselves to one of those identities would m- mean that the next thing that happens, I'm putting into a box and, and, and I've almost predetermined how I'm going to react to it and the decisions that I'm going to make in in order to react to it, right? If I've got the survivor mindset or, or um, the, yeah, the, I guess the sur- victim mindset, it's like, well, the next thing that happens, the first thing I'm going to do is say, oh, poor me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to make the decisions that aren't going to allow me to overcome it, aren't going to allow me to become stronger. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, uh, you know, what's important is recognizing and identifying what, I am holding as my person. You know, who am I telling myself I am? You know, is that the way I want to define myself? And why? You know, because it's very limiting. And it also sometimes results in a person, and even society sometimes does this, uh, seeing the person is somehow... Um, wounded, broken, you know, fragile. Yeah. Uh, something's wrong with them. Whereas, you know, I, I kind of like it's when you break a bone or you get a cut, you have a scar or a reminder, but it's usually, as the Japanese say, we're stronger in the broken places. I, I, you said it like I knew that they said that. Well, Stronger in the broken, stronger in the broken places. No, I'm not familiar with that very common Japanese phrase. (laughs) It's like the Japanese pottery that is crashed when they pull it. The raku that is, when they pull it from the kiln, it breaks. And what they do is they take those pieces and they rebond them with gold. 
and it actually becomes a more beautiful piece of pottery than it would have been had it just come Well, I should have done that to this pot that I bought in Mexico that broke on the flight. Because <laughs> yeah. it, looks, it looks pretty bad. I, well, maybe you ought to rebond I, it. I super glued it. <laughs> it's probably not stronger in the broken probably part. Probably not <laughs> you need to paint the, um, the super glue with gold leaf. Paint it gold yeah. and then I'll Put look really cultured. gold leaf on there. Instead yeah. of yeah. like I have broken pottery on display. Um, what do you think has been the most difficult decision that you had to make as a counselor? Mm. Well, part of the hardest decisions is not making decisions for your client because ethically that's not appropriate. Yeah. And um, people who are used to having been controlled or, you know. Um, they might like really want they really yeah. want They really want that. Um, and so I think just not falling for the making decision for your client piece is probably the hardest because it takes, um, a tremendous amount of will and also risking offending or alienating the person because you're not willing to make that decision for them. But, um... So that's just one one part of being. A I, do you do you find that some people are responding angrily to that? Oh yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I would imagine. Yeah, and I think. <clears> what know, am I paying you for if you can't tell me what to do here? Well, yeah, that kind of. I right, mean, like exactly. really coming at you hard. Exactly. Say, you, know. you know, and so let's say, how can I? My role is not to make your decisions for you because then I'm responsible for your decisions, and that's not my role. But my role is to help you find a process that works for you that helps you decide what mm -hmm. is going to be in your best interest. And I can give you information about that. I can give you procedures and processes. It's and a, well, it's a tools. form of leadership, right? It, yeah. It's less, um, it, it entangles the relationship once you give advice. Because if the, if the client receives that advice, accepts that advice, and then it doesn't work out, well, then it's all about you. You messed up. If they hear that advice, listen to that advice, and don't do it, then you're sitting there thinking they're a complete idiot. <laughs> so it, it well, then you have power over them. Well, you know, it didn't work out, and well, yeah, you should have done what I told you to do. Yeah. yeah so, what process do you you have somebody go through who's really wanting you to make a decision, right? Who's not accustomed to making their own decisions, doesn't want to but is at a point where they need to, other, other than saying, you, you have to decide, it's not my role to decide, you have to decide. How do you get someone from a point of indecision to decision? Well, and again, um, there, there has to be an assumption that this is a relationship of trust and this is a relationship that has been built over time and that we've explored a lot of, um, of the dynamics that have gone into the person's decision making in the past, and so they they come to the counseling session with a specific question, then I'm going to you know ask them, um, let's just maybe write out, and I will ask them to write it out in session because if I say. When you go home today, you might want to write out a cost and benefits or a 
uh, plus and minuses, and they're generally not going to do it. But if they do it in session, then it's there, and they're actually engaging in a cost-benefits analysis, or at least not only right analysis, but at least an observation of, oh, oh, you know. And then there's um, the process of time traveling. Um, you know, let's say you make this decision, what what would it look like in five years? Yeah. Let's say you don't make the decision, how do you see yourself in five years? Or how do you want to see yourself in five years? What decisions do you need to make to get to that? Or is so, this even going to matter in five years? Yeah. Well, if you yeah, ask it, them right. to, to time travel in five years, they may realize... The power of that is so much more profound than I even thought. I did an exercise where I basically wrote out in like a novel format um, what my ideal day or perfect day would be. I, I think it was a typical day, not perfect day, but typical day five years from now. I did this like a year ago. And I did it with a group of friends who all did it and we read it to each other. And I wrote it like a novel. I didn't just list out uh, 6 a.m. alarm goes off, 6.15, go for a run. I didn't write it like that. I wrote it. I tried to be creative with it. And it's only been one year, and, like, a lot of the things already had happened. There, there is one so year. much power in that. I, I, I think I may have told you. I, I was going through cleaning out some stuff when we moved offices, and I found some old business plans that uh, they were – you know, from 10 years prior and, and pulled one out. And all of these aspirations that I had written down, like all of them, uh, had come true. And some were in my personal life, some were business. Uh, the numbers had all been met. I think you feel like you, you actually owe it to yourself more. It, it, was, it was interesting. And what was funny is, is that I had not looked at that document in... Yeah. I, I, I kind of did it and then... I guess it was internalized. It wasn't something I was, you know, referring. You to. You almost don't have to because because you wrote it down. I think, at least this is the way I think about it: is I wrote that thing down, which means that I took it seriously. Which means I owe it to myself to do the thing that I said was serious, right? Whereas I just think about it for a little. Oh, I think I might need to lose weight, or I think I should eat better, or I think I should stop. Right. You know, it, it's kind of the whatever. worst lie you can tell is the lie to yourself. Like I'm going to do this and write that down, and then if you have no intention of ever doing it, you know. yeah, it's like I wouldn't have written it down if it wasn't important. And if it's important, oh my gosh, I have to do it. There's a name for for what we're talking about, you know, and that's why journaling is encouraged. Um, yeah, I don't know just about across all that. the board, you know. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to get into that. That's too touchy feely. That might be that might hit on tenderness, and that's not a masculine character. Uh, but it's called externalization. And when you make something external and concrete by writing it down, mm -hmm. then it's not just floating around as an aspiration or a daydream or yeah. a thought or a, some kind of nebulous future goal. It's, it becomes concretized. And there's something very powerful about that process. And I don't quite understand it. And it's not really been explained satisfactorily to me. It just is one of those is. It just is. It's just one of those things that is. Yeah. Well, what advice would you give to 
other counselors and how to defeat bad decision making in their own profession? Pretty much the same thing that we've been talking about. You know, first of all, um, get a lot of information about yourself. Get a lot of information about your clients. Get a lot of training, as much training as you can on a variety of approaches and um, theories and ideas um, that you can. And... um, just do those things. <laughs> I made it almost an hour without sneezing. Oh my gosh. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, before we wrap up, I, I really want to get your thoughts on one last decision. And that is, um, why'd you put the pineapples in the sweet potatoes? <laughs> That's it. I think you've made a lot of good decisions. I don't think that one falls into that category. So context here. I had had those at. Well, my, give, give at the a, context a, of what happened. I had a, I had, I had, sweet potatoes with pineapple, and pecan caramelized on the top in a casserole that. One of your father's cousins had made for a Thanksgiving dinner, that we attended in Dallas, and I really liked it. I thought it was really great. So the next, so you had brought, you cooked sweet potato casserole with brown sugar and marshmallows mm-hmm. every year for Thanksgiving for as long as I can remember. A big hit, by the way. By the way, best dish at Thanksgiving. Yes. By the way, best dish at anyone's Thanksgiving, I would say, is better than whatever anybody else had for the. It was it's it was the best. I'm going to definitively say in Texas, better than cornbread. Better than some people like they smoke their turkey. This, her sweet, the pineapple, the the year that that happened when she put the pineapple in the sweet potato casserole was her new Coke. Yes. It was. was, (laughs) So you, okay. The people need to understand as they examine this, as they they learn about decision making. You you made a, a hitter every year. A number one, a five-star, A++++ Hall of Fame of Thanksgiving dishes. Mm-hmm. And then you decided mm-hmm. yes. to insert a fruit into that <laughs> dish. <laughs> you know, not everybody disliked it. Um, those people were not straightforward with you. I don't. There were you. members of your family that, that, I hate to say it, lied to your face. And they said that they liked it. And, and I'm telling you this out of love because is the, again, best dish of all time. And I just, I just, I wanted you to, I wanted to give you the opportunity to publicly defend that decision that you made because it's the only bad one I can point to in your whole life. Oh my gosh. You know, I, I wish, don't I wish, you know, if, if, if adding crushed pineapple to the sweet potato casserole is the number one offense. Hey, I feel good about that. I feel okay about that. And there's no defense for it. I just liked it, and I thought, well, this would be nice for a change. And it obviously was a (laughs) failure, and it was soundly dismissed, and I have not been able to live it down, yay, this many years. I don't know, but it's been a long time. All right, well... I've gotten over it, but nobody else has. Because <laughs> we had to eat it. <laughs> no, I didn't eat it. 
Okay, so let's go through our takeaways. My takeaway when I uh, when I talked through that discussion, uh, I had a learning, and that was around why people go back to relationships that are abusive after exiting one or, or suffering trauma, coming back around. And it was really around trying to gain mastery over that issue. And so that was something I hadn't heard before. But also in looking at figuring out where you are and, and what role you're playing in a relationship uh, in order to get back through something, having to figure out what role you are. You know, am I a survivor? Was I a victim? What's that? You know, that, that I thought was really interesting too. My takeaway was that we have we have to be very conscious of our mindsets and the, the way that we perceive ourselves because that can inform some biases in how we react to new events uh, particularly emotional events and that can inform the decisions that we make so um, matt talked about the you know victim mindset the martyr mindset the uh, survivor mindset and uh, the thriver mindset I was like, man, yeah, that that can make a huge difference in the decisions that we make to respond to that. Can I add another one? Because, I mean, no. it just made me think of that. The, uh, when we started talking about suppressing other emotions and not dealing with them uh, and having that come out, I think she said sideways, mm -hmm. which I had not heard before. Uh, that, that that emotion doesn't go away. If you bottle it up, it expresses itself somewhere else and so i thought that that was really interesting so it makes it important to deal with those, those that's, things that come up. that's why i cry every time i watch michael jordan highlights <laughs> Is that it? Yeah. well we didn't get an answer to the pineapples in the sweet potato decision but that's all right thanks for listening to this episode of decidedly i hope you learned something I love, love, love my grandma so much. I think she is the wisest person that I know. And every time I go over to her house for lunch, every time I hang out with her, I feel like a better person just by spending time with her. I hope you feel the same way after getting to listen to her for a little bit today. If you did, give us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, if you didn't, then I hope someone puts pineapple in your sweet potato this Thanksgiving. Check us out on iTunes and on the World Wide Web. Uh, I think I said iTunes and Instagram. You know what I mean, folks. Anyway, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.